test, test, test.
Jonathan? Well, everybody's ready. <laughs> really, really good. Thank you for coming out this afternoon, and uh, so uh, so good to see each and every one of you. I want to thank uh, Cap City for hosting this event and appreciate that so much. Um, so right off the bat, I'm going to introduce you to the pastor, Jonathan Barker. He's going to give uh, some housekeeping things and then turn it back over to me. Hey, thanks, Mike. When I interviewed for Cap City Church, the only reason I took it is because they said they had John Maxwell coming in a few months. So thankful uh, for the opportunity to host John today. Cut my teeth reading his books when I was a kid. My kids are doing the same. So um, really excited to not just have this opportunity, but a lot of you here are my friends. You know, I sent you an invite, and it's a great privilege to have you guys here with me to hang out and spend some time with John. So uh, make yourself at home. Uh, the restrooms are on the southwest corner. If you need that, I'm sure you can slip in and out as needed. Uh, and other than that, make yourself feel at home. Thanks. Appreciate that so much. I just want to um, give a shout out to Margaret and Linda. Would you stand, please, for a second? For more than a second, but give them your appreciation. Margaret, I, I, John will probably talk about his bride there, and uh, we appreciate her joining him this time. Linda, it's been a privilege to work with you uh, in this for this event, uh, just to get to know you better, and uh, you really take care of John, and everybody appreciates that so much. Um, I would like just to thank John as well for uh, his coming. Uh, we've been talking about this for some time. It's a free event because he has made it free, and uh, would you just thank him for that as well. Well, I think we've all read some of John's books. Anybody here not read one of his books? I don't see a hand, John. I know you didn't want to look, but, you know, it, nobody raised their hand. So uh, we've all read his books. We've all been challenged, motivated, and hopefully making a difference in our world because of his ministry in our lives. He's touched all of us. And, John, personally, I want to thank you for coming and being a part of, of this great event. And for that, I'm, it's under the evangelism department that we kind of run this through. It's our new evangelism department. David Dean is our director for that. And so I'm going to let David say a few words and then uh, and give an introduction. And then we'll bring, we'll bring uh, John up at that point. Thank you. First of all, I just want to say, John, it is an honor to have you. And uh, some people know him as Dr. John C. Maxwell. Some of us know him as John. Uh, one guy called me and said, tell Johnny I said hello. I don't know, say hello. But many of us know and watched his journey. As his journey started in Central Ohio, in Circleville, Ohio, and the old Circleville First Church of Christ in Christendom, and the Mount of Praise Camp Meeting, and Circleville Bible College, played a huge part in forming the man that he is today. And that journey then went to Chillicothe, Ohio, where, and Margaret, to be quite honest with you, you are the only girl that I ever remember that John really, really dated and really cared for. And he found the beautiful Margaret Porter, and they've been married now 53 years. I know that because they were married one year before we were, and we're married 52 years. And the journey then went from there to Hillham, Indiana, where at Hillham, Indiana, God began to call him to greatness. A 
it's a long story that we won't go into, but God began to call him to things. He came back then, the journey came to Lancaster, Ohio, to our Faith Memorial Church, and there he began to build one of the fastest growing churches in the country uh, and was the fastest growing Sunday school in the state of Ohio. And then went from there to northern Indiana where he began to mentor and work with churches on a larger scale. And from there to California. And in California, God began to open doors that took him around the world, took him to the largest corporate places in America, took him to the largest churches in America, took him across the sea to meet with prime ministers, to meet with congresses, to meet with the best leaders in the world. And I've said two things to John, and I've just known each other an awful long time. And the first thing I've said, John, you may remember this, that the churches of Christ and Christian Union gave you wings, but God gave you wings. And you've been flying higher than any of us ever dreamed, and he wants you to know that. And the second is because he found it in joy and because he found it equipped, and I've said this to him on multiple occasions, John, thank you for taking a journey and inviting all of us Will you stand with me and let's welcome John home. John, welcome home. Thank you. You may be seated. David, David, these are your notes. Here. Here you may. I told Linda I need them. Yeah, nothing's there. Go ahead. Take I, I, love, I love Mike introducing uh, David to introduce me, and he said a few words. He said he'll say a few words. And I thought, boy, Mike, you know David very well. <laughs> David and I are lifelong friends, love him very much. Preaches too long. <laughs> Other than that, no problem. My name is John, and I'm your friend. On the count of three, give me your name. One, two, three. Nice to meet you. It's good to be home. It's good to see many of you. Many of you I just uh, know from the past and to be able to come back. I was in Dallas, Texas um, Tuesday night, so we flew up here after an event. I was there and uh, got into Columbus. So yesterday we took Lynn Eggers, um, who has literally ran Margaret in my life. I mean, she does everything for us. We, we would be very worthless without this lady. She just, she handles, tra she handles everything. And so we took her on a Christian Union tour, and we took her down to Circleville, showed her the college, went over to Lancaster, and uh, I hadn't been in the church for a long time, so I, I was, I went in there. It was good to see it again, and took her down to Chillicothe, that's where Margaret lived and uh, yeah we just gave Linda a, a tour that she hopes she never has to go through again <laughs> but it's so good it's so good to uh, see you again and to I, I want to thank you all of you for the roots you did give me because David you're exactly right there are so so many things that I experienced and learned when I grew up in Christian Union uh, have just been values and, and uh bedrock for the foundation today of where I am. So very grateful, very grateful for 
what I learned and who I am. And, and uh, of course, I won the parent lottery with my dad and my mom. And just, just great, great people. So I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. So thank you very, very much. We're going to go down the pumpkin show tonight, and I'm going to ride in the car <laughs> with the mayor and have the highlight of my life. I figured I'll do that tonight, and then I'll die and go see Jesus. And, uh, <laughs> that'll just, gonna so I, I've had people asking me what my schedule is this week, and I told them I was going to be in the pumpkin show parade. And they're having a hard time figuring that one out. They just, they, I said, don't try to figure it out. You just, you had, you just had to grow up around it to, to know it and appreciate it. Uh, what I would like to do, if it's okay today, and, and I'll, uh, hopefully I'll get a... I came in kind of at the last moment, and so hopefully when I'm done, I'll be able to say hi to you. And, and uh, Did I understand correctly when I was out there? Is Betty Seymour here? She's not here. Okay. You know, Betty and Don, you know, this is old people stuff, so probably. But Betty and Don Seymour were just great missionaries to Papua New Guinea. And, and he was, when I grew up, he was just a hero of mine because he was a great soul winner. And he went into that country to really make a difference. And I was um, so in hope that, that I would be able to see them because uh, in next month uh, we have been invited to come into uh, Papua New Guinea by the Prime Minister. And we're going in next month. And uh, they want us to do transformation in the whole country and do values training. And I, I will meet with Parliament. I'll meet with... I will meet with the top leaders in business and top leaders in education in the entire country. And the reason I, I mention that to you is because um, Don and Betty Seymour sowed seed there. And I, I, I just think very deeply of, of how I'm now getting to go in behind him and some of the fruit that he began and some of the foundations he began in that country, how now... I, 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 I wish he was in better health. I, nothing I would have loved better than put him on the plane and have him go with me. And and uh, and see his fruit. Because I'm always reminded that, you know, some sow and water and some reap, and we all have different places in the body of Christ, transitions and times and periods. And uh, how how glad his heart would be of his obedience to the Lord and his heart for his heart for lost people. So that's what I'm going to do next month. I'll be thinking I'll be thinking about Don and Betty every day that I'm down there wishing that of course that that he could he could see the fruit of that labor. I, I would like to talk to you if I can about um, transformational leadership. Um, in fact, I want to talk to you in a moment about characteristics of what does a transformational leader look like? Um, how do we identify one? How, how do, hey, more than identifying one, how do, how do we become one? So I think I need to go back and tell a story. It, uh, you know, it goes back 20 years probably. Um, Tony George used to own the Indianapolis 500, and he would have me come every year, and I would talk to the the drivers, and then I would talk to the, in another section, the, the car owners. And um, it was always fun. I would go, I'm not really kind of a racing fan. I just, 
I like to drive fast. <laughs> I've got plenty of tickets to show that. But, 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 uh, but I always loved going there, and I, and I really got to share faith a lot in that, in that circle. In fact, one year I had my son Joel with me, and the chief steward came to me and asked me to come down and meet him at the, down by the pole at, uh, at the, a certain time. And so I said, well, sure, I'll, I'll come down if that's, what, you know, if that's the next thing on the agenda. And as soon as he left, the guy that was beside me says, you know what that means? I said, I have no idea what that means. He said, you're, you're going to get in the pace car at the end of Aptus 500. And, and, and my son Joel just thought he died and went to heaven because he loves cars. And, and so we were in the pace car. We did the, uh, and, and so, but, but we were, I was having lunch with Tony George in his suite, which was looking over the Indianapolis track. And we were having lunch at, and he said, John, he said, what's the difference between success and significance? And I shared with him that day that success is pretty much about me or it's about you. It's, it's, it's kind of what we have accomplished in our life. And so when some people look and see what we've accomplished, they say, well, you know, they've been very successful. And, and what they're usually talking about is they've done well in life. What, whatever, whatever doing well means to you, that, that, that's what success is. And I said, uh, so success is probably about me and, you know, the books I've written and the places I've been and who I know. I, I, that's probably success. Because it's about me, but I said significance is about others. And I said, what I want to live is a significant life. I want to live a life that uh, was given and, and dedicated and committed to serving other people. It's, it's all about them. I know a lot of unhappy, successful people. I, I've, I've crossed over into a, a secular world and I just know a lot of unhappy, successful people. They got all the stuff in the world, but they're not happy. But I have never met an unhappy person that lived in a, a life of significance. I, not one time, not one time I've ever seen an unhappy person that gave his or her life to add value and to help others and to, and, and to be a servant leader. I was with Pat. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, uh, the other day, we were doing a conference together, and I'm sure you've read a lot of his books. He's a terrific person. And he said to me, he said, John, he said, I don't know why we keep talking about servant leadership as if it's a distinction of what kind of leadership it is. He said, there's only one kind of leadership in the world, and that's servant leadership. And, and, and when he said that, I thought, how true that is, because he understands, again, a life of significance. So where I want to go with you is it really starts back when I was pastoring in Lancaster. It was on July 4th in 1976. We had an outdoor rally that day. We had a 4th of July parade. We had about, oh, about 3,000 people that day outdoors. And I was preaching a message on America Needs Revival. And in the middle of the message, I felt God speak to me more clearly at that time than any other time in my life. And I, he just spoke to me and, and just said, John, you're going to live your life to train and develop leaders. So, in fact, on the way home, uh, I was telling Margaret that day, I said, you know, God talked to me today. And, of course, she immediately perked up because she never knew God had ever talked to me. So, I mean, it was kind of like, this will be an amazing revelation. And, and, and so I told her, I, I think he's called me to, do, to train leaders, develop leaders. 
And I'll never forget, she said, well, what are you going to do about that? I said, I don't think I'm going to do anything. If God called me to do that, I'm going to see what he does. I'm going to see what doors he opens for me. And that week, I had two invitations that very week from different groups, two different groups completely, not related to each other at all. And both of them asked if I would come and just do some leadership training and teaching for them. And I said, yes, of course. And now, all these years later, the doors just have kept open in the area of, of leadership development and leadership training. And what probably gave me such a passion to train leaders is that I became convinced while I was at Lancaster that everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, that's what I'm known for around the world, that phrase, everything rises and falls on leadership. But I know that to be a true phrase. It's a true statement. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Always has, always will. It's true in church, it's true in business, it's true in government, it's true in education. Everything rises and falls on leadership. That statement has kept me in the leadership game. Because if that's true, if I can help people learn how to lead better and add value to people and serve well, that means that they're going to they're gonna have a very significant life. And, and so that's where it begins. And I started, we started training. We started developing people and teaching them leadership skills. And um, it was very rewarding. It was very rewarding. I began to cross over because I felt God again speak to me very clearly when I was in San Diego pastoring. And I went to my publisher, and, and they were talking about my books, and they were doing pretty good. And the publisher said, we just, we just discovered that two-thirds of your books are being read by the business secular community. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, we're not kidding at all. They're buying your books in bookstores that aren't even Christian bookstores. I said, you're kidding. I, I had no idea. But it was at that moment, that moment of surprise to me that I felt God again very clearly say to me, John, it's time to cross over. You, I, I'm going to open up, a, you talk about a missions program. I'm going, to, I'm going to open a mission field for you that very few people are going to ever have the opportunity to, to enter. And so I, I entered that world. But when I think of everything rises and falls on leadership, I'm often asked the question, well, what causes leadership to rise? And there are two things. It's very simple, just two things. One is leadership skills. You just have to have good skills in leading people. And if you and I have good leadership skills, people want to follow us because we lead well. People, people deserve, the phrase we use in our companies is people deserve to be led well. They really do. And, and so when we lead well uh, and have leadership skills, everything rises. It, it, it's, it's a good time for the organization. But there's a second area that's just as essential as leadership skills. You not only have to have good skills, but you also have to have good values. And, and they both are required for leadership to rise. Good leadership skills, good values. And it's not either or. Uh, it, it's not like they don't lead well, but they're a good person. Well, if you have somebody that doesn't lead well, but they have good values, don't let them be the leader. 
just let him be your friend. You know, just go to lunch with him, okay? Enjoy a friendship. Because you don't want to be led by somebody who can't lead. I mean, they may be a good, I mean, when people say, well, we elected them because they're a good person, I, I say, well, I'm, I'm, that's nice. Can they lead? And since it's a leadership position, it helps if they can lead. But the flip side is also true. If you have great leadership skills, but you don't have good values, then what you'll do is you'll manipulate people. You'll, you'll, you'll lead them for the wrong reason. You'll lead them for selfish reasons. You'll lead, them, you'll lead people not to add value to them. You'll lead people to add value to you. I, I can still remember uh, about 15 years ago being in Kiev, Ukraine, and I was getting ready to speak to well, about 15,000 people, a secular event. And my translator was in the green room with me. And he was talking to me. He said, John, he said, I've read a lot of your books. And, and, and I said, thank you. And he said, you're about to go out and speak to people that I just, I just, need, to, I just need to make this clear with you. Because you say that, that leaders add value to people. And he said, you're about to go out and speak to 15,000 people. That if you tell them leaders add value to them, they're not going to understand you. Because they've never had leaders add value to them. All they've ever had is leaders take advantage of them and control them and manipulate them. So he said, I just want you to know if you go out and start talking about leaders add value, you're not going to connect with all these people because these people don't, never have seen it nor do they believe it. And then he left the green room. It was like five minutes before I was to speak and I thought, he could have talked to me earlier about this. <laughs> I mean, he could have given me like a a ramp to kind of say, okay, what do I, you know, how do, how, do, how do I get connected? And so I remember walking out, that arena was packed out. And I looked at him, I said, how many of you have had leaders take advantage of you? And every one of them raised their hand. And I realized right then that, remember, leadership values are essential. They never, they never had anybody that cared for them. You know, I was, I, when I did the opening session a few years ago for the United Nations, they asked me to speak to all the ambassadors for two hours on leadership, and I thought, how do I, how do I talk to them about leadership when they, some come from kingdoms, some come from democracy, some come from socialism, some come, you know, some come from, from dictatorships. I mean, they're just varied. They're, how do you do leadership with all the varied perspectives? And that day I talked about Three questions that every follower asks of the leader, regardless of culture, regardless of where you are. And the three questions are, do you care for me? Can you help me? And can I trust you? <coughs> and intuitively, everybody that needs to be led well asks those three questions. They, they want to they follow a leader that cares for them. I mean... If, if they don't care for you, you understand that they won't be there to serve you or add value to you. And, 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 and you want to follow somebody that can help you. I mean, the reason you follow leaders is because it's going to be better if they follow you. It, it just gets better. And so it's a great question to ask, can they help me? I mean, that's what leaders are supposed to do, lift people, make a difference, positive difference. And then can I trust you? That's all about integrity and are you a good person? And will you do the right thing? Will you, will you do the right thing? 
And, and, and when I think of those three questions, isn't it interesting? Two of the three are about values, trust, and care. And the other one's about competence. Can you help me? And so when we talk about everything rising and fall on leadership, those are, are, are the two essentials. And, and I had a wake-up call in 2000. That if you go back to 2000, you'll remember Enron and, and Tyco. And remember the corporate scandals in America. And, and all of a sudden, people realized that these companies were not trustworthy, that they weren't telling the truth. And, and they had been horribly manipulated and used. And, and they came crashing down. And Time Warner was my publisher at that time. And they called me up to New York for a dinner. And they asked me if I would do a, a, a they asked me if I would do a write a book on business ethics. And I said, no, I, I said, I can't do that. And they said, why? And I said, because there's no such thing as business ethics. And they looked at me and said, well, what do you mean? I mean, look at these companies and what they're doing in business is terrible. They said, we need you to write a a book on business ethics. I said, you don't understand. There's no such thing as business ethics. They said, you're going to have to explain this. I said, well, it's very simple. There's just ethics. You either have them or you don't. And if you have them, they work in business. Oh, happy day. <laughs> but you don't like compartmentalize them. It's integrated in who you are. But this was life-changing for me because then they said, well, can you write a book on ethics? And so I said, I'm not even sure I could do that because in a culture that has no truth or no absolutes in it, you don't even have a foundation for ethics. But I felt that I should do my best to be an answer to the problem. So I, my research team did a really good job and, and we really worked hard on it. And, and I wrote a book called uh, On Ethics 101. In fact, it's funny, it's just a little book, but it was probably the most decorated book I've ever written. Got all kind of awards for it, but I wrote the book based on the golden rule. Because research tells us that in every culture, in every country, they have a golden rule. Now that's common ground, that's foundational. I can, I can build something off of that. And, and so, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated. This is where it was life-changing for me. When I wrote this book, it hit me. We had been teaching leadership skills, but we needed now to teach leadership values. We, 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 needed, we needed to help people understand that, that values would, had to be core in, in, in the leader's life. And we had already, through Equip, trained five million leaders in every country of the world and became the largest training company in leadership of the world. And I remember when our, our not, that was through our nonprofit, and I remember when our board, when we hit five million, I mean, we really tried to hit a million, and, and it just kept going well, and we, we hit five million. And I remember the board looking at us and saying, well, we've accomplished that. We tried for one, we did five, and let's have a party and celebrate and thank God for it. And I said, no, I said, there's something else. I said, there's something more. We're still not there. They said, well, what, what is it? I said, we have to go down to helping trained leaders be transformational. And, um, and they pressed me on it. They, they did. They pressed me on it. They said, well, how, how, do you know, how do you know 
a leader's transformational? And I said, I don't know yet. I, I don't know. I, I just know that that's where I need to go. And I, I'll, fi I'll, I'll figure it out, but you're going to have to give me a little time. And that was very difficult. I, I mean, I had, a, I had an incredible board, amazing board. Most of them were not only highly successful themselves in life, but many, they were all close friends of mine. And I'll never forget, it, it was a, it, I, I felt very lonely. I had, I had board members that day say, no, I, I, we, I think we've done our part. And we don't understand what, transfer, what, what you're going for in transformation. And so I had some of them leave the board. And, and they weren't mad at me. They just couldn't see the vision. And I remember, you know, I felt a little lonely, but I, I, I just knew, I just knew that, that this was the way God was directing, and, and I would figure it out. I, it was just going to, it was going to have to take me some time to figure it out. And so the way that, if you're not sure of something like, I, I, I was sure that transformation was where we wanted to go. I just wasn't sure what it looked like. I, I couldn't define it. I couldn't spell it out. I couldn't, I couldn't make it vision palatable to where people could look at it and say, oh, I got it, yes, and these are the steps that we need to take to it. All the things that good leaders could do it, that just it didn't happen. And I felt that we should try to see if we could teach values because I learned that from Enron. I thought we need to teach leadership values and I think I would like to to go into countries. And wouldn't it be amazing if we could do, if we could transform a country, if we could transform a country on good values. And I made a decision that um, I, I would only go in in the invitation of the president of the country because I, I wanted to start at the top. Most, most mission organizations stop at the, start at the bottom 10%. And by the way, it's Matthew 25. I understand it well, and I think it's wonderful. I, I'm not anti-starting at the bottom. What people don't understand, though, is if you start at the bottom 10%, you can't influence the other 90. Influence has never gone up. It always filters down. So you have to go to the top 10%. If you want to change a country, if you want to change a community, if you want to change a culture, you have to go to the top 10%. And we were incredibly blessed because of what I had written in leadership and had traveled extensively internationally. We had a lot of leadership connections. So we started, we started with, with, with Guatemala. And, 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 and every place that we go, um, we go for that top 10%. There are eight streams of influence in your culture, okay? In your community. Let's, let's forget a country. Let's think, of, let's think of the people around Capital City here, right here, this church. There are eight streams of influence around you within the 25-mile radius. Well, with satellite, you can go a lot further. But, but there are always eight streams of influence. And, and if you want to transform your culture... You have to not only know those eight streams, but you have to become influential with those eight streams. And the eight streams of influence are um, government, uh, business, media, arts, education, healthcare, sports, and religion. Those are the eight streams. 
And so we said what we need to do is we need to, we need to effectively go into those eight streams of influence. And we need to get them to sit around small groups and, and around tables like this and discuss good values. And um, so we made a real commitment to do this. And Malcolm Gladwell, who's a wonderful friend, in his book The Tipping Point, talks about the fact that if you can, if you can influence 10% of your culture, you can, you, can, you can change your world. You can change your community. 10%. 10%. So our goal in every country is to get 10% of the people in that country. Now just think it, break it down to your community. What would happen if as a church you would get 10% of your community sitting around tables discussing good values? Because that's the tipping point. So we were, invited in, we were invited into Guatemala. We've been in Guatemala for nine years now. They have 21 million people in Guatemala and we have two million people now in small groups uh, around tables. And, and then we went to Paraguay. We're over 10% there now. We're in Costa Rica. We're at the Dominican Republic. We're getting ready to go to Papua New Guinea, as I said, in December. And then next year we will go to um, Brazil. And, and in fact, in, in, well, in Brazil now, they've opened up the schools. We've written curriculum for students. And uh, three years of values curriculum. Uh, the first year is I, I get to choose good values, then I, I get to practice and do good values, and then I get to lead others to have good values. It's a three-year curriculum for school, in school, in school, in the classroom. Not before school, not after school, not around the flagpole. Aren't we tired of Christians trying to affect Christians and not penetrating a secular culture? you got to do it in the curriculum. And God is really helping us, and maybe I can tell you a little bit about that in a few minutes. But, but, the, but the, point, the point being that we began to go in to teach these values. And, and by the way, all the values are biblical. I mean, I give you the, I mean, it's honesty, it's integrity, it, 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 it's hard work, it's forgiveness. It's, it's all biblical stuff, but there's no biblical verses or scriptures with it because we're crossing over into a world and what you do is when you cross over, you, you don't look for what the differences are. You look for what the similarities are. You're trying to find common ground. It's on common ground that you begin to have the doors open for you in evangelism and in sharing your faith, et cetera. You, 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 you're never going to lead people to Christ if you talk about in the media, in the, in the immediately about your differences. You, you find out what you have that, that's common. And, and, and so that's where we are. So there are six pictures of transformation. The first picture is leadership. Everything rises on and falls on leadership. And if you can get into that top 10%, remember this, if you can get in the top 10%, you can positively affect the other 90. If you go to the bottom 10%, 90% will be untouched. So that's why we start, we start the top 10%. So it's a picture of me as a leader. And then it's a picture of partnerships, of joining hands with other people, which is huge. It's, it's, it's the fact that we need each other. So we go in and get these eight streams of influence. We get buy-in from them. So the government leaders are in tables. The Supreme Court's in tables. Congress is in tables. Top business people are in tables. And, and, and what, we learn about, what we learn about effectively influencing people is this, because we have training companies 
is that if the leaders are involved in the training, it's successful. If the leaders are not involved and they send their people for the training, it's not successful. So it all begins with the fact that the leaders are doing it themselves. You know, we teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. So, so there are, there's a picture of it. it begins as it's, it's a leadership, it's joining hands, it's a picture of a ladder helping people climb up to reach their potential. How? By, by learning and living good values around a table. It's, that's, the mecha, that's around the table. So it's a picture of leaders. It's a picture of, of, of joining hands. It's a picture of a ladder. It's a picture of the heart. That's where the values are. It's a picture of a table. And then it's a picture of a bridge. It's, it's where we allow people to, to cross over to, um, to, to a better future. That day when I had that very critical board meeting, and I said, I think we're not done. I think we need to go from training leaders to teaching trained leaders how to be transformational. Um, I couldn't define for my board what that looked like. But I knew that if I would just take action, I would discover it. And, and, and I, I, I'm not going to teach on this today because I wouldn't have near the time. But there's a teaching I do called action attraction. And, and the teaching basically is that it's when you take action that you begin to attract people, resources, opportunities, insights. It's, it's all through action that you begin. So we begin to take action, and now, 10 years later, okay, 10 years later, with millions and millions of people around tables and doing transformation in countries, and by the way, we have 23 countries in line right now where the, president, where the presidents of the country is inviting us in. They've, they've said, would you, would you come into our country and do transformation? Because one country tells another country and it's starting to get what you call legs in transformation. But now I know what a transformational leader looks like. I, I don't have to look at you like I did my board that day and say, well, you know, I know we should be doing this. I'm not quite sure what it looks like, but, you know, just give me a little time and we'll figure it out. I know today. I know. Know exactly what. I, I can give you a clear picture, and I'm going to do it now, of the characteristics of a transformational leader. And you can go to the bank on them. Um, so let's get started. First of all, transformational leaders, they see things that others just do not see. They're, they're set apart um, because they just they see more and they see before. That's, that's just who they are, and that's just what they do. You see, there's only one thing, as I travel extensively, there's only one thing that I think leaders have in common, only one thing. And so when people say, what, what's, what's the one thing common? Because, I mean, leaders are different types of personalities, different temperaments, et cetera. The only thing that leaders have in common is that leaders do see more than others see, and they see before others see. They just do. Which means they see a bigger picture and they see a quicker picture. Now when I started 50 years ago in Triple C, you, you didn't have to see before others see. You just had to see more. You just had to, you just had to have a big picture. Now with the way communication is in social media today, before is of equal weight of more. It, it, in fact, 
if anything, it's tipping the scale and the ability to see before others see is becoming very important. The best way to illustrate that so I was having dinner one night with Gail Devers and her husband. And uh, she wanted to ask, she had read a lot of my books, she wanted to ask me some questions on leadership. And you may recognize the name Gail Devers. This is a little bit in the past, but Gail Devers is the most decorated female track athlete in uh, United States history. In fact, she won medals. Now she's a runner, she's a speed lady. She, she ran medals, she won, won medals in three different Olympics. In fact, the night we were having dinner, she was preparing for her fourth Olympics. And she was running races against girls that were her daughter's age. I mean, just, just I mean, so a phenomenal athlete. And so we're doing leadership and having a wonderful dinner. And I thought I would have some fun with her at the end. And so I told her, I said, Gail, I've been thinking about this all dinner. I said, I think if you and I ran a 100-yard race, I said, I, I think I could win. And she looked at me and she said, what do you mean? I said, well, what I mean is if you and I ran 100 yards, I think I could win. And she said, you're kidding me. I said, no, I'm very serious. I said, I've been thinking about it all dinner. <laughs> I, said, I think, yeah, I think if we ran a 100-yard race, I could win. She, in fact, she looked at her husband, and it's kind of like she's not hearing right. You know. She said, did you, did you hear what he just said? He said, yeah. He says he can win a race with you. And, and, and then what was really disgusting is she turned around and she looked at me, the Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> She's looking at this fat old guy who says he can run a race against this incredibly trained athletic speed lady. And she can't handle it anymore. I can see the, she is now, forget dinner, forget leadership questions. She is ready to take her high heels off put me in front of that restaurant. We're going to run a block and I, I'm going to eat dust. She's going to make me eat dust. She can, I mean, now she's ready. She's ready to show me I cannot win the race. And I get her right where I want her. I mean, she's just right on that edge and I'm loving every moment of it. And I said, now Gail, I said, I'm ready. I, let's go out. But I said, before we go out, I said, understand if we run a hundred yards, I can win the race. If you give me an 80 yard head start. <laughs> now, the reason I took all dinner to think about this was the 80 yards. I really wanted to say 70. <laughs> I wasn't so sure I could win. But on 80 yards, this fat boy could roll across that line. I, 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 I'm going to win on 80. And, and of course, now we're all, and, and, and when I said that to her, she just started laughing. She said, well, of course, of course you get an 80. Yeah, of course. And then I said, Gail, the, the lesson is very simple. It's a leadership lesson. The fastest person doesn't win the race. It's the one who starts first. Don't miss it. By the time everyone else has caught on, and you start doing it, you're not going to win. The before is huge. And to be able to see more than others see, and to see before others see, this just begins to be huge. Every month, I think of Mr. Horton. Mr. Horton was my fifth grade teacher. 
in Circleville, Ohio. We were coming in from the playground one day, and he pulled me aside. He said, John, I just want to know. I watch you. I watch you with the kids, and you're a leader. They follow you. And even growing up in my father's home, Mr. Horton was the first person to say, John, you're a leader. He saw before. He saw before I saw. I didn't know I was a leader. Didn't have a clue. I just like going out on the playground and telling kids what to do. <laughs> Putting them on sides, lining them up. I just, I just kind of thought that's what you do. I had no clue. But, 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 but you see, Mr. Horton, he, he saw before. I mean, it, it just as pastors and leaders, doesn't it just make you have a desire to go to people and spot something in them that is a, an incredible success trait in their life and be the first to tell them? To, to be the first to tell them. And, and, and transformation leaders, I, I just tell you, they, they see more than others see, and, and they see before. You see, there are two kinds of people. There are, are many people who, who they see things as they are, and they ask why. I mean, our, our culture, our, our, our country is in pretty sad shape right now. I've, I've spent the last few years being what I call leadership sad. I'm just leadership sad. I just... I think, really, is this the best we can do? I mean, really, we, we, is this the best we can do? I, I, think, I think leaders, I'm not being political with you at all, so don't go there. I think leaders on both sides are putting the parties before the people. Really? Is this the best leaders we can have run for office? Is this... Is, is this really the best that we can do? So there's some people, they look at things as they are and they ask why. They'll say, well, why is our country in such bad shape? Why, why is our church not doing well? I mean, why, why, why? And, and let me just say something. Those people are in the, the vast majority. They just see things as they are and they ask why. And, and what I've discovered is that Anybody can spot a problem, honestly. You, you know, you, you, we, we all say, well, there's a problem there, there's a problem there. It, and, you know, I, I remember when I was pastoring and my staff would say, we have a problem here. And I got so worn out with them talking about the I said, let me explain something to you. When you come and tell me, I said, any person can see a problem. I put a word in front of that, but any person can see a problem. But I said, it takes a leader to find a solution. So I said, when you come with a problem, bring me three solutions. Or don't even show up. I don't need to hear you. Honestly, you don't have to be smart to see a problem. But when you can, but when you can find a solution and have an answer, and I said, by the way, when you come with the answer to the problem, one of the answers better be you. Put yourself there. You'll be surprised how many people will quit talking to you about problems after you <laughs> begin to help them see the light, the, the big picture, the whole, the whole big picture. But you see, most people, the vast majority, they see life as it is and they ask why. But great leaders, they see life as it could be and ask why not? Why not find the answer? Why not go to a higher level. You see, most people see the problems, few people ever see the possibilities. 
So transformational leaders, they're pioneers. And they see the potential. And they're not afraid to, they're not afraid to put themselves out right out there on the front end of that potential and say, look, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the first to, to take action. I'm going to, I'm going to be the first to, to make this commitment. So if you're a transformational leader, you just see more than others see. And you see, you see before others see. Your, your vision is just amazing. It's just amazing. I can still remember when I was pastored in Skyline and I was filling the load of, we were in about a $40 million relocation issue. And I was getting just weary, a little tired. And so I called up my good friend who then was living, Bill Bright, who was that, at that time, the, of course, the leader of Campus Crusade for Christ. And then back then he was still, in, their headquarters was in, they were in Arrowhead. And that was just 100 miles from where we lived in San Diego. And so I asked him if he could have some time, and we went up. I went up. He said, sure. He said, I got. So I went up, and I spent a couple hours talking to him about the load I was carrying, and he prayed with me. He was just, he was beautiful. Then we had lunch, and he said, John, did you have just a, did you have a moment? Just a, if you got like another hour. He said, we're doing something that's kind of exciting. I'd like to share with you kind of my vision. I said, well, sure. I mean, he'd help me in the morning, prayed with me over my $40 million relocation deal. <laughs> So we went into his office. He said, now we haven't even started putting this out yet, but he said, in about six months, he said, we're going to unleash this on the world. And he said, this is going to help fulfill the Great Commission. If you knew Bill Bright, he was a great visionary, phenomenal vision. By the way, more people went to heaven because Bill Bright lived than any man in the history of the world. Unquestionably, not even a close second. He just mobilized kids around the world to share their faith for spiritual laws. So we sat in his office and he showed me the Jesus film. He said, we're going to put this around the world and people are going to see the life story of Jesus and millions and millions of people. And he said, tens of millions. He said, hundreds of millions of people are going to come to Jesus. Now let me just share with you. I come to him with a $40 million relocation challenge. And he was showing me a Jesus film that was going to change the world. Let me tell you something. When you're around big people, what you're doing doesn't seem so big. <laughs> and I started getting under conviction. I thought, here I am. I'm way down with a $40 million relocation deal. And he's got a Jesus film that's going to go change the world. And I said, I know you prayed for me once, Dr. Bright, but we've got to do it again. We've got to do it. Forget the $40 million, dear Lord. Forget that. That's, a, that's chump change in the kingdom. I want to be like you. I want to see more. I want to be like you. I want to see before. And he laid his hands on me and he prayed for me. Life-changing. It's always life-changing when you get around big people. Big people make you feel bigger. By the way, small people make you feel smaller. So transformational leaders, they, they just see more than others see. They just do. They just, that's, that's, that's how you identify a transformational leader. Number two, transformational leaders 
believe things that others do not believe. Wow. They just, they not only can see further, their, their belief, their belief is just so much greater. It, they, 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 just, they just believe for things that most people just, well, they just would have a hard time believing it. You know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful when the people believe in the leader, but it's even more wonderful when the leader believes in the people. And, and, the, and, 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 and these transformational leaders, they have strong personal belief. They truly believe. They truly believe they can make a difference. They they, sometimes, they don't sometimes know how they can make a difference. They don't even know when they're going to make a difference. But they just have this feeling: I can make a difference, and 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 I believe this. It, it's kind of like I suppose you don't have to believe in me, but you have to believe that I believe in me. And there's something very convincing, and something that carries a, a moral authority when you're with somebody that just. They just have they just have a high belief in, in in their calling, in their mission. Wow. That they they just believe that God created them to truly to truly make a make a difference. They have strong personal belief, they have strong kingdom belief, they have they have strong people belief. I, I can still remember when I graduated 1969 from Circleville Bible College. Dad was the president at that time. And so we went out to dinner that night, and I, I said, Dad, I'm getting ready to go. I was getting ready to go to Hillham, Indiana, my first church. And so I said, you know, give me some advice. Help me. And that night at the dinner table, he just gave me life-changing advice. I've kept it with me the whole way. He said, John, he said, do three things every day. Wow. When they tell you to do three, three things every day, you write them down. I mean, that's every day. He didn't say, do three things once a year. He said, every day, just do three things. What is it, Dad? He said, believe in people value people and unconditionally love them. If you do those three things, just believe in people, value people, unconditionally love them. He said, I promise you, people will want to come and hear you preach because they can feel that belief. They can feel that you value them. They can feel acceptance in you. He said, they're, they're going to want to, they're going to, he said, anything you do, John, the people, it's like a magnet, it draws people when, when you do. And I followed that grid, that was in 1969, and I followed that grid in writing books and talking like I am today to you, or in everything I do, I just, yeah, I believe in people, I value people, I, I unconditionally love people. And I love passing that message over to the secular community. I'll probably tell you this story in a few minutes. But uh, we're starting to make a difference in the public school system in America. Just 
Trust me. Fasten your seatbelt. I'll tell you a story in about, about eight or ten minutes. But it's out of the story that I want to tell you that I was pressed by a state leader of education. I'd been teaching values all day, and, and I made the statement how much I valued them as people. And he pressed me, and he said, you know, John, he said, you say you value me. He said, I don't think that's true. He said, you, how can you value me? He said, you don't know me. Oh, I said, that's true. I don't know you. I said, I don't even know your name. See, he said, that's my point. You don't even know who I am, and you value me. He said, that's not possible. I mean, how could you do that? Oh, I said, it's very possible. I said, I don't value based on me knowing you. I value based upon the fact that God created you. He not only values so much he created you, but he put certain giftings and abilities within you. Oh, my. I said, I don't, I don't have to know you. I just know God who created you. And he values you greatly. I, I would hope in the Christian community, I've been very sad, the divisions that we've had. I, it's very sad to me to, I, I think in the last three to four years, I think with COVID, I think, I think we've lost an incredible opportunity to, to share our faith and witness you got to understand when, 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 when difficulties come to people, it's the highlight of a Christian's life because it's in difficulties that people say, I need something. They, they begin to have an awareness, and it's in that awareness that gives us the opportunity to become salt and light in their life. So I always like it when difficult things happen. You know, I, I know you Christians pray against all that stuff, and and I just want you to know, I'm not messing with you right now. I'm, you're praying for those easy days. I'm saying, oh, dear God, forgive them. No, we need it hard. Hard times are good. Bad times are really good. COVID was amazing for sharing faith. Oh, my gosh. It was just incredible because, you know, people, in, in fact, during COVID, I, I, and when I came out of it, and people would talk about the fear that they would have in their life, and I've I would just say, boy, I, I said, I, I just value you so much. I, I would give anything if you had my faith. They said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'd give anything if you had my faith. Well, why do I need your faith? Because, well, I don't have that fear that you have. I, my father helps me through these difficult, dark times. And I just... I just wish you had, I just wish you had my faith. I mean, I just feel sorry for you. Well, I have questions. I said, I got it. Man, oh my gosh. I wish you had my faith. Because, you know, my creator, he, I don't mean to say this unkindly, but in the end, we win. It's, in fact, the question I have for all of you is, why are Christians so fearful today? Why have we gone down the same rabbit hole that lost people go to? Why isn't there such an incredible, fantastic, beautiful difference between who we are and how we live and who they are? Wow.
the transformational leaders, they not only see more before others see, but they believe. They, 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 they believe that out of these incredible, difficult times, it's just going to be amazing what God can do. They're not defeated. They're encouraged. Number three, transformational leaders, they say things. They just say things that others, that others don't say. They, they just do. They just say things that others don't say. By the way, if you believe it but don't say it, it doesn't help anyone. I love these people who come in the afterthought and say, well, you know, I thought. Well, I'm glad you thought. means nothing. It's, it's when the leader says and speaks words of strength and encouragement and direction and confidence in the people's lives. That's, that's, that's when they, they rally when they hear it. They are inspired when they see it, but they take action when they hear it. I was just with Doris Kearns Goodwin, and we were in Washington, D.C. for a couple days, and we were having round tables with leaders. And we were at the Lincoln Memorial, and Doris Kearns Goodwin was telling us that when Martin Luther King gave his speech, she was, she was in the crowd. Wouldn't that have been something? To be there. To be there. And she told us that how enrapturing it was. It was, it was. She gave such a great talk right where he, of course, gave the speech, I Have a Dream. But what people don't realize is that in the first part of his speech, of course, I never knew him, but Coretta Scott King, his wife, and his daughter Bernice, I mentored. What, what people don't know is the first part of his speech, it was a good speech, but wasn't a, it was kind of a tenuous speech. It wasn't a great speech. And he, and he paused. If you ever watched the speech, he paused for almost 10 seconds. He was trying to gather himself. He, he knew it wasn't quite connected. Mahalia Jackson was right behind him. And during the pause, she said, Martin, Martin, tell him about your dream. Tell him about your dream. And that's when he started telling, I have a dream. Wherever you go in the world, wherever you go in the world, all you got to do is say, I have a dream. And everybody, oh, it's Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Martin, tell him about your dream. You see, there's something incredible that happens to people when you take your beliefs you take your sight, what you see, what you, what you, what you believe on the inside. There's something that's, that's transformational when you begin to, to speak it out. There, there's something about speaking it out that's, that declares, that, that, that helps us to cross the line. I, we have a coaching company. In fact, we have the largest, largest coaching company in the world. We have uh, almost... I think about 48,000 coaches in 172 countries. And every six months in Orlando, we bring in new coaches and we, we do three days of training. About eight years ago, we were doing our training for our coaches. And a young lady from Paraguay named Gabby, I was teaching our coaches how to be transformational leaders, doing some of this and talking about the DNA of a John Maxwell coach. And we were going through this whole process. We were helping equip them 
And I was talking about transformation, and so Gabby came up to me. I'd never met her before, just a tiny little lady, mother of two, beautiful little family. And she said, John, she said, uh, this transformation, she said, I want to see my country transformed. And she said, here, just would you write, she gave me her passport, she said, just put, take one of the pages and write the word transformation on it. And so I did, and she thanked me, and she came back after another session, she had a couple books and she wanted me to sign. She said, I want you to sign this for the president of Paraguay. I said, be glad to, what's his name? And I'm talking to her, I said, now, do you, you know, I'm assuming, I said, do you know the president of Paraguay? She said, no, no, I don't, I don't know him. Well, I said, I'm signing a book for him. She said, I know. Thank you. I said, Gabby, you're going to have to have to help me. I'm missing something here. Well, she said, I don't know him. But she said, after today, I'm going to know him. Because he's the key. If you ever come to Paraguay, he's got to write you a letter. I got to get to the president and tell him what you can do for our country. And I signed the book. And to be honest with you, she just left, and I thought, oh, I love her spirit. I love her attitude. About three months later, we get a, pre- a letter from the president of Paraguay. <laughs> Would you come to Paraguay? So we go vet country. So we went down to vet him. And sure enough, Gabby had gotten she In fact, she went home to her husband. He had, wasn't at the training. She went home to her husband and said, we got to meet the, the president of Paraguay. He said, well, good, good. <laughs> How are we going to? I, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. We're going to meet the president of Paraguay. To make the long story short, it's an incredible story. She met the president of Paraguay, gave him the book, told him about transformation. Now, now here's, what I, here's, here's what I don't want you to miss. She had no encouragement. She had no plan. She had no funds. She had no experience. She had no mentor. She had no connections. How many no's do you want to hear? But she spoke her belief into existence. And so when people say, well, you know, I I think we could probably make a difference if we'd get funds, or I think we could make a difference if we'd have, and they want all these conditions to be ripe. Let Let me tell you something. Transformational leaders, they don't wait for the conditions to be ripe. They go make the conditions ripe. That's transformational leadership. See things others don't see. Believe things others don't really believe. Say things other people don't say. This, do you see? They're getting out of the people pile. They're setting themselves apart from others. Number four, they feel things. They just feel things that others do not feel. They can't even describe it to you. But they're broken. I had privilege, of course, of talking to Don Seymour about Papua New Guinea. And when he went to Papua New Guinea, he was the first one in. He didn't have somebody saying, come on in and we'll sponsor you. Come on over and we'll help you get started. Come on over and we'll introduce you to people. He just went in. He just went in. A lot of adversity. 
A lot of struggles, cannibalism, all kind of issues that the country was facing. And he's right there in the middle just doing his best to love people and share the good news. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking today, I'm thinking today, would it even have been possible that I would have gotten a letter from the Prime Minister of New Guinea to come in and do values-based training? By the way, throughout the whole country. If somebody like a Don Seymour wouldn't have felt that burden, that passion, that conviction to just get in the game. You see, a, a different world cannot be built by indifferent people. It's not possible, friend. It's not possible. You've never known an apathetic person make a difference in anybody's life. But the moment you begin to see things and believe things and say things, you see, now your feeling has legitimacy. Without belief, without seeing, without saying, you can have feelings and they're just kind of like feelings. It's, you might as well spend the day at Disneyland. But the, but the moment that you're, you're, you see transformational leaders, they're beginning to build on these areas. In my book, Change Your World, the opening part of the book says, Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to make a difference. If you have anger of the injustices of the world and the things that are wrong and that there are lost people, if that upsets you, you're feeling the right feelings. If you have courage to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, do, I'm going to do something about it, it, it ah, passion. Passion takes the message. And it takes the messenger and gives energy and lifts that message and lifts that messenger to an entirely different level. Number five, transformational leaders, they do things that others just don't do. We talked a moment ago about the power of action and how but by the way, by the way, let me, let me just, I think we, we, I need to say this here. Good intentions, that's the most overrated phrase in the English language. What a worthless thing to do, have good intentions. Good intentions never changed their life. Good intentions have never done anything. You understand, good intentions are worthless unless they're turned into good actions. It's, 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 good intentions are only good if it leads to good actions. And good in, you might as well have no intentions. In fact, if you want to, you can have bad intentions. I don't really care. As long as it's in the intention world, nothing happens. It's got to get out of the intention world. Well, you know, someday I'm going to do this. Well, you know, if things get better, I think maybe I'll... Transformational leaders, 
They take action. And by the way, when they take action, again, they're like a Don Seymour. He never was there. He, he, he just said, I got to go. I just, I've just got to, I've got to get into the arena. I've got to, I've just got to, I've got to play the game. I've, I've got to do something. Wow. I was at a conference after my Change Your World book came out. I was on a book tour. I asked everybody there, I said, how many of you want to change your world? And everybody raised their hand, you know, remind me of a preaching service, you know, just here we are. We're all, yeah, I want to change your world. I said, well, how many of you are willing to buy the book? And about 60% raised their hand. And I thought, isn't that so typical of people? Oh, yeah, yeah, preach it, preach it. Oh, yeah, preach it, preach it. Worthless, worthless, worthless. In fact, I've thought about it. I, I think we have too much church. Next time you preach, tell the people, now go do something about what I said. And when you do something, come back and I'll give you something else to do. Most people in church are educated way beyond the level of their obedience. How many Bible studies do you really have to have? Really? 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 My name's John. I'm your friend. <laughs> I had a guy at a conference come up to me, and I was speaking to a couple thousand people on leadership. It was a pretty good day. I'm signing books in the last session. He comes up with the book and he says, man, I love this leadership stuff you're doing. He said, I've made a decision. I said, what's your decision? He said, I want to do what you do. I said, good. That's a good, that's good. I'm glad. I said, could I ask you a question? He said, yes. I said, I know you want to do what I do. I got it. I got it. But the question I have to ask you is, would you like to do what I did so you can do what I do? And when I asked him if he wanted to do what I did so he could do what I do, all of a sudden he lost his enthusiasm. <laughs> you, you see, he, he wanted to do, but he didn't want to did. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of people who want to do. But they don't know that the did comes before the do. And they don't get the do unless they did the did. So if you don't do the did, you don't get to do the do. In fact, if you don't do the did, you're in deep doo-doo. Got one more. I'm supposed to be done. And I would be done, except it's your fault. You're just so receptive. I mean, you're either, if you were a bad audience, I'd have been done 15 minutes ago. Man, when I got a bad audience, I just say, whoo, let's, where's the exit? You know, where's the exit? Where's the, but I mean, you're taking notes, you're in there. You're, I mean, you're soaking in, and so it's your fault. Normally, I wouldn't go this long. One more, one more, one more transformation leaders. This is a fact. They receive things others do not receive. 
Wow. And the first thing they receive is fulfillment. Remember in the beginning of the lesson, success is about me, significance is about others. I know a lot of unhappy, successful people. I've never known an unhappy, significant person. When we take our coaches, we take our coaches to these countries for transformation. They pay their own way. And they pay everything. They give up a week. They, 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 and they go with me. We'll take a couple hundred, maybe 300, depends on what. And the, those 200, 300, they'll train 20,000 facilitators of small groups in, in four days. I mean, they're up at 6 and they stay till 6 at night. And they just work hard training all these people. And so the first night I meet with them before they start the next morning. And I do a whole lesson on the difference between success and significance. And the essence of the lesson is this. I teach them every time. Once you have tasted significance, success will never satisfy again. It just won't. I, I mean, I don't mean this unkindly. It just won't. There's so, and I tell them, Every time I say, I know you've come and you've set aside money to do this and you've sacrificed, and I, I got it, I got it. But I said, when you go home, you're going to receive more than you gave. It's just the way it works. So let me tell you one story to encourage you, and then I'm done. For 10 years now, we've been doing Transformation in Nations. And we, we go in with, with teaching values. That, that's, that's what we go in for. And um, I've always hoped that there would be a day I could bring it to America. But I knew the timing wasn't right. When I was at my first trip in Guatemala, I was dealing with the two people, groups of people. I was dealing with eight families, eight families in Guatemala own 83% of the country. Eight families. So I spent a, a half a day with those eight families helping them understand we have got to see your country transformed. And I was working with them. And then I was working with the cabinet and the leaders, the president and the cabinet. And so I was, in the evening, I was, I was let, we were doing Q&A. And one of them said, John, why are you down here? Try to help us live good values when your own country doesn't have them. Well, that hurt. But then what really hurt was all the people that come through Guatemala with drugs. Their destination is your country. So understand, our problem is your problem. And I told him that we had lost our way. I had an honest moment. In fact, I wept that night. I, I just, I was very sad, very sad, very sad. But that planted a seed within me. I thought, will there be a time? Will there be a place? You know, my mentor, John Wooden, one of the things he taught me is he said, when opportunity comes, it's too late to prepare. He said, John, don't let opportunity come and you miss it. Always be ready. Be ready. So I've always been kind of saying when opportunity comes in America. Last year, just about a year and a half ago now, I was, um, after, right after COVID, many of the public schools wanted me to come into for their states to talk to them about COVID because the public school system went through 
horrendous times and felt very bad for teachers and students. And it was just a tough time for schools in period. So in South Carolina, they asked me to come to speak to all the principals and superintendents of the public schools. So I went there and I talked to them. Uh, I talked to them about leadership and how leaders uh, shift and adjust during difficult times. To, and so I gave them some ways to shift and adjust to get them through the difficult period. And they were very receptive and it was all over. They were on their feet and they were clapping, they were cheering. And, and I felt good. I, I knew I'd helped them. And then immediately, I just felt led of the Lord. I said, could I have two minutes of personal privilege? And they said, sure, they sat down. And I shared with them, I said, America's in trouble. We've lost our way. We, we, we've lost our values. We, we are a valueless country. I said, if I was wanting to bring America back again, I wouldn't go to the government. I wouldn't go to Washington, D.C. I don't like any of them. <laughs> Honestly, I think we ought to just let them all go home for two years. If we miss them, we'll call them back. <laughs> I said, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't give, I, to change America with values, I wouldn't give it to politicians because most politicians don't have any. I said, if I wanted to change America, I would do it through the education system. And I would do it through the public schools. I said, for two reasons. One is, you get the child first. Remember my race with Gail Devers? Whoever gets started first wins the game. I said, you get the child first. I said, number two is you're accountable to your local communities. You're not like D.C. You can go do whatever you want to do, and basically we can do very little about it. I said, you, there's, a, there's a somewhat of an accountability in your... And, I, I would do, and so I told him what we were doing with, with values training in schools. And, and so then I went back and I was signing books and a lady came up to me. Her name was Molly Spearman. I didn't know what her name was at the time. She said, can I see you? She said, I'm the head of the school system here in South Carolina. Can I talk to you? So I said, sure. I signed the book. So I went in the side room. She had two of her team with her. And she said, I want to be the model for your values training here in South Carolina. She said, can we have your curriculum? She said, we have 200,000 junior high kids. I'd like to try that with our junior high kids. I said, well, sure. I said, what we have. In fact, I said, look it over. And if there's something that you think that doesn't work, just let me know. We maybe can adjust them. But I knew we were very safe because we've been We've already trained several million kids in public schools through it. So I knew internationally, I, th I knew we were safe. They came back with three minor adjustments. It's, it's no, it was no big deal at all. By the way, again, these values have no scripture to them, no Bible reference at all. Please understand, I'm trying to reach lost people. I've got to get in the door. I've got to get in the door. You can't lead them to Christ unless you have a hearing. And you can't have a hearing if you don't value them right where they are. See, the problem with the Christians is they just value people that think like them. How pitiful. By the way, you're so un-Jesus-like. So un-Jesus-like. If you follow the Gospels, when you get done following Jesus, you come away with one real strong conclusion. Jesus valued people. 
And he valued people that were totally unlike him. He's eaten with the sinners, tax collectors. I mean, he comes into town and says, Zacchaeus, hey, Zach, let's go to lunch. He's the town thief. He didn't ask the mayor. He didn't ask the pastor. And by the way, the only people that got upset with Jesus because he valued everyone were the religious people. Don't miss this. I know you value people like you. I got that. But you become Jesus-like when you value people that don't have your values at all. It's called loving them unconditionally. It's the most Jesus-like that you could ever be. So they've been doing the values curriculum in South Carolina with the junior hires. They came back with incredible returns and reports. The teachers were saying, by the way, in my Change Your World book, every superintendent and every teacher and principal in South Carolina, I did a statewide book study with them on Change Your World. They all went through Change Your World because they wanted to understand how to do it so they could see it done in the classroom. It was so successful. Molly Spearman, the head of South Carolina, was elected to be the head of the national all 50 states. She's the number one lady now in the public schools. She was elected, and I know you're sitting to say that was an amazing, amazing coincidence. No, that was an amazing work of God. You call it. I know what God does. God does exceeding abundantly more than we ask or think. But it's according to the work within us. So she asked me to come to New Mexico four months ago. So I went to New Mexico in the summer and I met with 100, just 100, just 100 educators, but they're the top 100 educators in America. In, in education, it is not the government. I'm a, I've been a friend of the DeVos family, Betsy DeVos. I've been a friend for them for 30 plus years. She has very little to do with how education works in America. You just have to understand it's not a national issue, it's a state issue. And every state has a, super, a person over all of the public schools. And I met with all 50 of them. They were all there from every state and their number two person. And we did a whole day on values teaching. It was out of that that the person asked me the question, how can you value me when you don't know them? I taught on values. They asked questions about values. We did a values table just like we do in the classroom. Are you ready? We got a thumbs up from every state in the country. We're going to start with six states, three red, three blue. By the way, if I could start with any of them, I would start with blue. Six states are getting ready to put the values correct. Now, now, now let me see, be careful. This is in the classroom. This is with math. This is with language. This is values. Understand. Christian values. Oh, no, no, don't have the verse. So don't get nervous on me. And Christians, don't come and tell me I've got to have the Scripture verses. Please, I'm building a wall and I cannot come down. So don't bug me, okay? The reason the church couldn't get in is because the church has been so anti-public school, they won't let you in. My name's John. 
I'm your friend. And so now we have an opportunity. We really have an opportunity to begin to penetrate the public school market. And we're just grateful. We're just grateful. I was at Lancaster, and Eileen Beavers, who was one of the secretaries, gave me a book for Christmas. And I love books. And I looked at the title, and I, it said on the outside, The Greatest Story Ever Told. I thought, oh my gosh, I can hardly wait to read this book, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And I opened it up, and all the pages were blank. There was no writing in it. And I looked at her, I said, I didn't it says on the outside, the greatest story ever told. And there's no story. She smiled and she said, go to the front part behind the cover. She had written me a note. The note simply said, John, your life is before you. You write on these pages your dreams, your hopes, your prayers, your greatest thoughts. You write the greatest story ever told. And the next morning, I took that book out. And the first thing I wrote on the first page at the top was, I want to make a difference. I didn't know how I was going to make a difference. I didn't know when I was going to make a difference. I didn't know why I wanted to make a difference. I just knew I wanted to make a difference. And over the next couple months, I wrote my dreams and my vision. The essence of the book was, I want to make a difference doing something that makes a difference with people who make a difference at a time when it makes a difference. Now, when God created you, he has a book for you. And he wants you to write the greatest story ever told. By the way, it's your story. It's your story of how God has gifted you, created you for greatness. The dreams that he has for you, the hopes he has for you, the gifts that he put within you. And he wants you to start writing that story. And what's so beautiful is that the seed is being planted now in this room. The seed of transformation, the seed of possibility, it's being planted in this room. And for some of you, this has a life-changing possibility because we've met together. If you would allow me just to close in prayer, I would like to pray for you. Father, thank you for letting me come back to my roots, the lessons I learned here, the people I met here, the experiences that I had here, they're all part of me. They're part of who I am, what I do, what I love. I pray for everyone in this room. Pastors, business people, lay people in a congregation. I ask that you would raise up some more Gabbies in the Churches of Christ in Christian Union. Just people that aren't even sure how they're going to do it, but they know this. 
they're going to start. And I pray that you will birth within them hope, courage, that they could begin to make a difference. And may they make a difference in their community. Every pastor, may every pastor, Lord, begin to think and believe and pray to be a transformational pastor. Their communities desperately need a transformational church in that community. And for the business people here, Lord, they're, they're, they're such an advantage. They're already out with people who need to know you in a personal way. God, I just pray that they'll begin to learn how to change their world and that they will begin to, that they will begin to make a difference right where they are. I just pray for them. I pray for us. May we be faithful and may we be fruitful in your precious name. The name that transforms and changes people's lives. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, John. We appreciate that very, very much. And I think we'll go away greater than we came and yeah. better than we came. So thank you so very much. Uh, we're going to do a couple of things first. And David has some giveaways very quickly through a drawing. We'll announce those. Then we have one final thing we want to close with. When all of you came in, we didn't make you stand in line. Everybody glad for that? Say amen. And, uh, and you didn't have to register, but we ask you to fill out this card and to put your name and, and contact information on it. And have our ushers pick those up? Have we got those picked up? Uh, has anyone picked those up? Okay. Uh, Michelle, can you and Deb, can you get that real quick? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a quick drawing. 